Good afternoon. Um, I've been in practice for about 10 years now, and my, the focus of my practice is uh, managing difficult cancers and uh, dermatologic surgery. And what I'd like to do today is I'd like to just share with you some pearls uh, from my experience that might help you with your practice. I have no conflicts of interest. Um, the first um, pearl I would like to share with you is to respect the basal cell carcinoma. I think in our practice we see so many basal cells that it's very easy to become complacent um, about this tumor. But um, I would like to um, help you um, look out for certain situations that will keep you out of trouble. This is a typical basal cell carcinoma, um, a pearly papule with depressed center and uh, ridged uh, margins on the central forehead. We see this all the time. And it's very true that basal cells um, and recurrences are usually very easily treated with lots of modalities, surgical mo modalities, topical modalities. They almost never metastasize, and very few patients die. Um, however, we need to be aware of these tumors um, and show respect for this tumor just out of the sh sheer incidence um, and the volume of tumors that we see. The tremendous cost it uh, saps out of our system for treatment. Um, and these tumors can be locally aggressive. Um, rough estimates put basal cell carcinomas uh, at about a million cases per year. It is far more than any other cancers in the United States. Um, there's an increasing incidence of these cancers because one, we have an aging uh, boomer population and people are living a lot longer. And we live in a culture where um, sunlight and being outside is very important, fishing, boating, golfing. And we have a uh, booming tanning business. Um, the Medicare budget for, for all skin cancer treatment, most of which was basal cell carcinoma, was $562 million, um, about 5% of the Medicare budget uh, a few years ago, making it the fifth most costly cancer, which you wouldn't imagine. So here are a few tips for you to avoid trouble with basal cell carcinomas. Never leave positive margins on your excisions. And that sounds um, like it's common sense, but you would not believe how many times I encounter uh, situations where the, the, the uh, surgical margins weren't, weren't um, uh, they didn't go back and take care of the surgical margins. This is a patient that I saw recently, actually. He had, several years ago, a little basal cell carcinoma on his left alar rim. They did a little excision, um, and the margins came back positive. His surgeon told him not to worry about it because it was just a basal cell, and if it came back, we'd just re-excise it. Well, it did come back, and the surgical line started to spread apart. Um, he came to me for Mohs surgery, and this was the defect. So he lost half his nose, part of his cheek, part of his lip, and this is uh, in most of the muscle below this area. Um, so um, 
never leave positive margins in your excisions, especially on the head and neck. Um, be careful of patients um, who are at high risk for basal cell carcinomas and be careful of aggressive basal cells. Um, some of these include patients who have had a history of radiation therapy. There were many, especially older women who had radiation therapy for acne when they were young. Um, recurrent tumors, always respect recurrent basal cell carcinomas, um, especially on the head and neck. Patients who have overwhelming numbers like basal cell nevus syndrome patients. And, and, and tumors that are located in high risk areas. This is a patient who came to me with two basal cells on the upper lip and he and his doctor delayed treatment because these were just simply basal cell carcinomas. We did Mohs surgery for this patient and those two tumors connected. He had a basal cell carcinoma through and through on his entire lip all the way to the mucosa and he required the removal of the entire area, including part of his nose, cheek, and his entire upper lip. Also, treat basal cells early. I see a lot of patients come to me and they say, ah, oh, it's just a basal cell, you don't really, we'll just watch it and let it grow. Um, this is a patient that came to me very early on in my practice. She was one of my first patients, actually, when I started practice about seven years ago, private practice here in St. Louis. And um, she had gone to a doctor many, many years ago with this rash on her scalp. Uh, they had given her, um, she had, uh, the doctor had given her topical agents and didn't get better. She got other topical agents, didn't get better. Then she was lost to follow up for many years. She came to us, we took a biopsy, and this turned out to be a basal cell carcinoma. Now, to be fair, I'm sure that this looked different when initially when the doctor was treating her many years ago. But if your treatments don't work and you're not sure what the diagnosis is, biopsy it. This is the post-Mose defect and she had to have a transposition flat from um, the back of her posterior, uh, excuse me, her, her occipital scalp in order to get some of, the, some of her hair back. Um, this is another situation where I see um, basal cells really be becoming difficult. Um, this patient came to me. Um, he was referred by an older dermatologist uh, down the street. And the older dermatologist called me and didn't know what to do for this man because he didn't have health insurance. So I got together with uh, Dr. Phil Custer here in St. Louis, um, and he was willing to do pro bono work for this gentleman. Um, and we took care of this basal cell using modes and then oculoplastics reconstruction. Um, this was his resection, Mohs resection. And I always think about this gentleman, I think about this gentleman a lot because um, I wonder how easy it would have been to take care of this basal cell if he had access to care um, and we would have taken care of this years ago. So these tumors can be very, very destructive. And I, um, you know, it, it's really, uh, it, it, it makes me a little ashamed to be in medicine when these people come to me and say, gosh, nobody would take care of me. Um, these are important tumors, they can be really bad. And I ask that you guys take care of these people, uh, consider doing pro bono work or reducing your fees to help them. 
So aggressive basal cell carcinomas can rarely cause death. I've had a few patients die of basal cell carcinoma, usually tracking into the brain. Um, they can cause high morbidity, and they can lead to disfigurement. Um, the other thing I want to tell you about basal cell carcinoma is beware, um, be careful when you use topical agents. Um, it's very popular, popular to use po topical agents now, but the concern here is um, uh, many times the topical agents will treat the top of the carcinoma, uh, will not top the, take care of the deep part of the carcinoma and allow that deep portion to grow for a long time. Then you have bigger problems. Um, the, um, um, I do use topical therapy in some cases, um, and that's when, you know, surgery is not an option, um, you know, and we're talking about the head and neck here, um, when surgery is not an option or when I know that the tumor is truly superficial, the entire tumor is superficial, but if you do use it on the head and neck, um, after your treatment, consider doing a post-treatment biopsy in order to verify that all that tumor was taken care of. Um, these topical agents do not have the cure rate that surgery does. So even though these may be popular things to do, just remember that the highest cure rate by far is going to be surgery. We talk about um, high-risk anatomic locations. And for me, these locations are the H zone of the face. Uh, it, you know, the ear, the lip, periorbital area, the temple and nose. For me, the, pro, the, the tumors, the locations with the most aggressive tumors have been around the eye, around the nose and the lip. So be very careful with those. Um, so again, um, Surgery does provide the highest cure rate still. Um, first and early treatment is the best chance for cure. Where current or neglected tumors can do, can do significant damage. The second pearl is beware of squamous cell carcinomas in immunosuppressed patients. And I have made mistakes um, in this situation as well. Um, when we talk about immunosuppression in dermatology and squamous cell carcinoma, most people are talking about organ transplant patients or uh, patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL. Now, in organ transplant patients, the, um, how aggressive the squamous cell carcinoma is correlates well with the level of immunosuppression. So lung and cardiac transplant patients are at our highest risk for aggressive squames, followed by kidney transplants, then liver transplants. Just to show you how aggressive these squamous cell carcinomas can be, in Australia, where there's a whole bunch of white people that probably shouldn't be there, um, <laughs> metastatic cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma accounts for almost a third of all the deaths of post-cardiac patients, almost a third. So um, these patients have uh, a higher risk for all kinds of malignancies, um, internal and external, but really squamous cell carcinoma, they have a 65-fold 
uh, increase for squamous cell carcinoma. That's really what does most of the damage. Ten-fold uh, increase for basal cells, three-and-a-half-fold for melanoma, and about 84-fold for capaces, although that is much more rare than those other tumors up there. So this is one of my transplant patients. <clears throat> um, not all transplant patients will get squamous cell carcinomas, um, but um, there are two predictors for which transplant patients will get squamous cell car lots of squamous cell carcinomas. That, and those are, one, patients who have a history of squamous cell carcinoma before the transplant, and patients who start developing lots of squamous cell carcinomas um, th within three months of the transplant. And you have to watch these patients very carefully. Otherwise, you know, they may show up years later with overwhelming numbers of squames. The other disease uh, for immunosuppression is chronic lymphocytic leukemia. This is the second most common cancer of the elderly. It's a chronic disease. Many people live for years with this condition. It is a malignancy of the B cells in the white blood cell component of our uh, immune system, and because that portion of the immune system doesn't function properly, they have an increased risk for um, lots of tumors, including skin, skin cancer. Now, for whatever reason, we still don't know yet, these patients have very, very aggressive squamous cell carcinomas. They have more, and their squamous cell carcinomas are aggressive, um, and these, in my experience, these tumors will recur or metastasize even when you have clear margins on excision, on Mohs, or even uh, if the patient has radiation therapy. So watch these patients very carefully. Now, those patients in combination with high-risk squamous cell carcinoma is uh, very dangerous. And when I say high-risk tumors, uh, I want to tell you what what constitutes high risk for me. Um, the first is poor differentiation. You know that squamous cell carcinomas are categorized as well differentiated, moderately differentiated, and poor, poorly differentiated. The poorly differentiated cell tumors are very aggressive in my hands. Um, under, the, under the microscope, they show minimal keratinization, lots of pleomorphic cells, um, and, and reports say that up to 14% of these will metastasize. This is a clinical picture of a poorly differentiated squamous cell carcinoma, and this recurred after Mohs. Um, but you can see how juicy and macerated this looks, and it's because this tumor's not pr producing any keratin. Uh, another high-risk factor is recurrent squamous cell carcinomas. Tumors, um, recurrent squamous cell carcinomas will metastasize in 20 to 25% of the time. Anatomic location for squames, I really do not like them on the ear and the lip. They have lots, and I think it's because there's lots of lymphatic drainage in those two locations, and that's how squamous cell carcinomas travel. Uh, size, um, anything above two centimeters anywhere, anything above one centimeter in high-risk places. So what I recommend to you is when you encounter one of these patients, and you have an aggressive squamous cell carcinoma, use wide margins on your excision. Sometimes I will excise these patients with one, one centimeter margins if I, if I feel that it's aggressive. Consider Mohs surgery, 
and sometimes I will even do adjuvant radiation therapy, not only to the local site, but I will also ask the radiation oncologist to uh, irradiate the uh, lymphatic drainage um, uh, areas as well. I, I'm a big fan of sentinel lymph node biopsies for squamous cell carcinomas. I have had a few patients where I sent them for a sentinel lymph node biopsy, even though we didn't have a palpable node. They come back with uh, positive um, uh, sentinel nodes. Uh, they do dissection, and they respond much better to uh, aggressive surgical therapy than melanoma patients do. I, I do feel like you can cure those patients with uh, aggressive surgery. And then follow these patients very closely. If they do have an aggressive tumor, I like to follow these patients every three to four months, sometimes up to uh, 18 months. I find that if the tumors are gonna come back, they usually come back within uh, about a year. Pearl number three, do not transect an invasive melanoma. This is a big pet peeve of mine. And of all of us in this room, as many melanoma cases that we're gonna see, we're probably gonna transect melanomas. I have done it myself. Um, but it is important to use the proper techniques to try to avoid that. It is very difficult to look your patient in the eye and say, um, I messed up your biopsy. Um, and the other thing to think about is that many of the lawsuits in dermatology involve mishandling of melanoma. So this is a typical melanoma, which I encountered during fellowship. It's 3% of all cancers. There's about 40,000 new cases per year. It's about 1% of all cancer deaths. Um, it's very popular and well-known in the public. Um, just like the basal cell carcinoma, lots of, um, excuse me, increasing incidence of melanoma as well. It's increasing about 3% a year. In 1935, there was one in 1,500 chance that you would get a melanoma. In 2000, it was one in 75. And the cancer deaths are increasing as well, so the numbers look like they're real. So <clears throat> when you have a suspicious lesion, optimally what you want to do is you want to do an excision of the entire lesion and send it off, to, uh, send it off for pathology. What they will do is they will bread, uh, bread loaf or bread slice the tissue that you have given them. And then they turn that horizontally, and by looking at it cross-sectionally, they measure the Breslow's thickness, measuring from the granular cell layer in the epidermis down to the thickest or the deepest portion of that tumor. They measure the Breslow's thickness in millimeters. It's important to get the correct Breslow's thickness because the staging for your patient is based on Breslow's depth, lymph node involvement, and metastasis. The vast majority of your patients are gonna be, or 85% are gonna be in stage one or two. And, um, um, excuse me. And um, this is very important because Breslow's depth or thickness correlates very tightly to survival rate. This is one reference um, that shows that over 10 years, if you are stage one, which is less than one millimeter, your chances of survival are greater than 90%, stage two greater than 80%. So patients wanna know these numbers, and you know it's hard to tell them, gosh, we, we can't tell you where you are because we mess up the biopsy. So 
Um, commonly now, there are three ways that people will do melanoma biopsy. The first is excisional biopsy, where we take the, whole, take the whole thing, that's the optimal thing, down to the superficial fat. Uh, and if that's not possible, lots of people will do a punch biopsy through the thickest part or the most concerning part. Now, some people are doing shave excisions, and that's become very popular in recent uh, years. Um, but, uh, and some pathologists prefer that because with a shave, you get a broader representation or you get more of that tissue so they can see more of it to make the diagnosis. It helps them compared to a punch biopsy. But a shave excision is not the same thing as a shave biopsy that we normally do, okay? Um, a shave biopsy is just the sampling, usually from the epidermis of the dermis. A shave excision is much deeper. And really, you should be getting almost the entire uh, epidermis and dermis with that. Um, the vast majority, almost all the um, transected melanomas that I get in my office are performed when they try to do a shave excision. Okay, so um, when you do this, you run the risk of transecting that melanoma. So that's why I recommend that you do an excisional biopsy or a punch biopsy uh, to, for suspicious lesions. And if you have to or you want to do a shave excision, go deep. Pearl four. Um, Provide post-operative antibiotics for patients who have surgery below the knee. I get lots of referrals for surgery on the legs. It's a very tough place to operate on, and wounds don't tend to heal very well, even if at all. And it's also very hard to close because it's so tight, especially along the shin. Um, because of the minimal laxity, your closure is going to be under high tension. There's poor circulation usually because that is the highest hydrostatic pressure in your body. Also, m many of our older patients that I work on have venous insufficiency, and because of that, um, there's poor wound healing and also an increased incidence of infection. This is just a schematic to show pressure at the ankle in those patients who are lying and standing and walking who have venous insufficiency, as you can see in the red, when you have venous inf insufficiency, which you will not believe how many of our patients have, um, their pressure is high, uh, very high when they're walking or standing. Because of this, there's less oxygen that goes through this area uh, and fewer cells that are important for healing and for fighting infection. Um, this leads to edema and a host of other um, cutaneous disorders. Um, this is a, uh, an example, just, just, this was just a few weeks ago, this patient had a large squamous cell carcinoma on the shin, I closed it with a transposition flap with a Z-plasty back cut, and she, it, it was completely closed when she left my office, and two weeks later she comes back and you can see that it's uh, dehist, partly dehist, and she ended up having uh, an infection, even though she was on prophylactic antibiotics actually, she, and you can have that if um, the sensitivities aren't correct. So for my patients, when I operate especially below the knee, I put them on prophylactic antibiotics, and my first line is Keflex 500 BID for 10 to 14 days. Sometimes I'll even take them out to 21 days, depending on how quickly they're healing. 
Second line, clindamycin 300 BID for 14 days, basically gram-positive coverage. Sometimes I will do Cipro, which also adds a gram-negative coverage as well. Pearl number five, in situations where significant bleeding is expected intraoperatively, use local anesthesia containing epinephrine and wait 15 minutes before you start. Um, in some cases, when you have profuse intraoperative bleeding, it is very difficult to visualize the wound and do your best work. Um, um, it also leads to higher chances that you're gonna develop a hematoma in this wound, which is a wonderful place for bacteria to grow. So um, what I recommend, you will not believe, I don't know if many of you have operated with lidocaine without epinephrine, it makes a tremendous difference. But to optimize, um, in these cases, use epinephrine and optimize that effect. Most of us use lidocaine, 1% with 1 to 100,000 epinephrine, typical bottle. Um, lidocaine is the anesthetic component. It's a uh, sodium channel blocker and inhibits the action potential of nerves. And this effect is almost immediate. The second component of this is epinephrine and it is a vasoconstrictor, and because it constricts blood vessels, it does two things. One, by reducing the blood uh, flow um, through this area, it prevents the washout of the lidocaine, so it prolongs the anesthetic effect. The second thing it does, because it constricts blood vessels, it, 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 that it really reduces the bleeding while you operate. I was trained um, to think that the peak anesthetic, excuse me, the peak epinephrine effect was about 11 minutes. Um, but there was recently, I was at the last Mohs surgery meeting and there was an abstract that uh, they felt that it was more about 20 minutes. I recommend that you wait about 15 minutes because you know the patients can wait comfortably on your operating table for 15 minutes and it's not too long for some of the elderly uh, patients to uh, lay. Um, but inject and wait for 15 minutes, you will notice a tremendous difference um, for, um, excuse me, in terms of bleeding when you cut into the skin. One of the things that you can look uh, for for that effect is that blanching effect. It causes, uh, it's from the vasoconstriction and you should get a diffuse um, and a very exuberant one when, when it's done right. Um, this is, um, a patient who came to me for a squamous cell carcinoma in the scalp, um, and um, we were gonna do Mohs on this, and what I did, what we did was we injected this, and everybody knows that the scalp has lots of vessels. It's very, very vascular. I, I don't know how many of you try to operate on the scalp. Very bloody. So we let this sit for about 15 minutes, uh, see all the blanching that's going on here, even beyond these lines. This is the first Mohs stage, and you can tell um, this, this was very easily, the bleeding was very easily controlled um, uh, with just a little bit of cartery. This is another example. This is a, a lipoma on the shoulder. You, you know that you're gonna go deep on a lipoma or cyst. Um, you know there's gonna be lots of bleeding. Um, so we injected this, um, let this sit for a long period of time, and then we removed the lipoma, sutured it back together, 
um, and then um, we have time to put a pressure dressing on it um, before it wears off to minimize that bleeding. Um, you can see the blanching all the way around, way past where we operated. So pearl number six, um, use purse ring sutures to compress wounds that are at a risk for bleeding. I've come to use this suture technique a lot in my practice. Um, when I first started, I noticed that I was getting a lot of calls, a lot of my calls at night were people were worried about bleeding. And usually these aren't significant for you and me, but for patients they're very concerning. Um, so um, there are situations in my office where I leave the wounds open. Uh, these are just three examples. One is, for example, um, on melanomas, I often do staged excisions where we have to conserve tissue and, um, you know, on the face. We'll take an excision, leave that wound open, send that tissue off. Sometimes it takes about a week for that, those results to come back. Um, sometimes the patient doesn't want closure um, after an excision, or it's um, not not easily possible to do a closure, and patients don't want that much surgery, so we'll, we'll just let a lot of wounds heal by second intent. And then sometimes I'll do a delayed closure. For example, I, you know, we have a wound and it's deep, and I want to get some granulation tissue going at the base to, to lay down a graft so, it, 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 so the graft will have a better chance for take. So in, in those cases, along with patients who are at a high risk for bleeding, um, patients who have high blood pressure, who are on anticoagulants. I operate through most of my anticoagulants, by the way. Um, and, and, and difficult anatomic sites like the scalp and the ear, where we have a lot of blood vessels, I'll use this purse string suture. And it's very simple in concept, just like a drawstring purse, um, where you, where you apply tension to the opposite ends of the string and it closes the top portion of the purse. So on the right is a illustration of this and uh, you take a suture, you go in and you take small bites all the way around this uh, wound, you uh, get back to the starting point uh, and you uh, apply tension. So for this suture, what I do is I use a monofilament suture because it slides easier. You can use Vicryl or um, you know, uh, non-monofilament, but um, the monofilaments tends to slide easier. I take the bites into the dermis uh, because for most wounds in most situations, that dermis is gonna be your strongest thing that you can hold on to. Um, you can, I've seen some people use vertical bites and I've seen some people use horizontal bites. It doesn't matter. So this is an example. This is a melanoma that was sent to me, and originally the patient did a, uh, excuse me, the dermatologist did a biopsy out of the center, came back as a melanoma. Now, we don't know what the real Breslow's depth of that is because there's still more melanoma there. So I chose to do an excisional biopsy here um, under local anesthesia, um, remove that uh, just right around the edges with a 15 blade, remove the um, tumor, this is a defect. Uh, we're taking small bites all the way around the edges. Uh, oftentimes I'll have a hemostat grab the end of the suture because sometimes you'll pull that through and it'll be frustrating for you if uh, you get close to the end and you pull that through. Um, and then we just apply pressure at the ends. So you can see this is the 
post-op defect, and this is a defect with um, a purse string suture in there, will reduce the chances of bleeding. The patients will, it'll make the patients uh, feel a lot better to, to see that wound versus that wound. And we have not disrupted the lymphatic channels here in case this patient needs a sentinel lymph node biopsy. It's another example, patient with uh, melanoma in situ, staged excision, putting a um, purse string suture in, tighten, and you can see we can really reduce that. And um, what we're doing is we're decreasing the bleeding potential by tamponading those superficial vessels. Um, again, it reduces the wound size. It's simple, it's quick, it only requires one suture. You can even do it um, in, uh, cleanly. You don't have to be sterile for this technique. So that's something that I use a lot now. Pearl 7. Um, make the injection of local anesthesia as painless as possible. Um, you know, uh, you will be surprised how many people are afraid of needles. Um, and for me, my main concern for my patients are cancer, cancer cure rates, uh, cancer recurrence, and the two things my patients are worried about are, are how bad the needle stick's gonna be, and second, how good their scar looks. So this, this is a big deal for a lot of patients. Some of the things that we do at our office to really try to minimize pain is use the smallest needle possible. We use 30 gauge always. Um, I like to squeeze the skin that I'm going to inject. If I can, there are some places where you can't squeeze, where you do other things, but I like to squeeze that skin and inject that needle into the area that you're squeezing because that squeeze uh, sensation tends to alleviate the sensation of that needle stick. Um, I try to start a conversation, uh, let the patients talk, uh, let them tell you about their kids or their dog or whatever, distract them. Um, um, so that's another thing that I think is really useful. Um, the, this is one of the most important things. The, the pain that the patient feels correlates with the rate of injection, I have found. So initially, when you start pushing that lidocaine, inject very, very slowly. And once you get a, a little bit of it uh, anesthetized, then you can increase that rate. But initially, try to start with a very, very slow rate. The other thing is, I try to push that needle and continue to anesthetize. Um, it, but if you have, if you have to pull out the needle and inject again, inject into the areas that are already numb. Um, don't pull out and then inject into a new place where it's not numb, because I'll go through that same sensation again. Another thing that we do is we try to neutralize our lidocaine. Um, this is our bottle. The pH of the lidocaine here is 4.5. Um, part of the reason why it stings is because it's very acidic. Now, you can't raise it um, pH too high or else the lidocaine will precipitate. But what we do is we try to help with that by diluting, excuse me, by adding sodium bicarbonate um, in a ratio of one to 10. Um, that raises the pH and that seems to help the patients um, with um, decreasing that pain. So my recommendation to you is one, 
slow down with your injection, and even all of us are rushing through the day, but when you go to inject, if you just sit down, make conversations, slow things down, that helps calm the patient, start a conversation, inject slowly, um, the patients really do remember. This is one of the things I have patients ask for certain nurses because they had a good experience the last time with them. And it's, and it's the right thing to do. If, you, if we were on the receiving end, and we would want the same thing, especially when we we're gonna get an injection in our nose or our eyelid or ear or something like that. So this is my last pearl for you today. Um, strive for the best cosmetic outcomes. Um, even if the patients tell you that they don't care, they care. Um, plus, you don't want, especially when it's on their face, you don't want patient to be walk, patients to be walking around town telling them that you put that ugly scar on their face. Um, so generally, uh, the general um, theory is that punch biopsies, when you suture them, when you close them, will heal better cosmetically than a large-shaped biopsy, except uh, in areas that are concave. In areas like the concha bowl or the medial canthus or some of these other areas um, that are concave, shaved by, even deep-shaped biopsies will heal beautifully. You may not even be able to tell that a biopsy was done. Um, similarly, for larger procedures, excisions and closure of the wound with sutures are going to heal faster and better cosmetically than if you did a large EDNC. Usually they heal wide or depressed, but um, um, closing the wound is gonna give you a better result. Now the key, when you close these wounds, when you suture these wounds together, the key to leaving a beautiful linear scar is subcutaneous sutures. I see a lot of young surgeons playing with like their top stitches and doing all kinds of fancy things on the top. It, it, it's, it's somewhat important, but really the, these sutures, the deep sutures are gonna be your workhorse to close that wound and reduce the tension off the surface. This is an example. So this is a patient who I took a basal cell carcinoma off the left cheek. I, took out the burrows just so you guys could kind of see the elliptical closure. But anyway, uh, the first thing I'll do is I put in my first subcutaneous suture. And um, top side, bottom side, I pull that together. That's just one suture, okay? And look how well that epidermis is approximated already. That's what you, that's, that's, that should be your goal. That's what you want to do. And to the right, that's one suture. Okay, this is the second suture. You see how that's almost closed already, even just with two sutures. This is after all the subcutaneous sutures are in. Your epidermis should be kissing each other. There should be no tension there. Okay, and you could probably even steri-strip this, and it would be fine. This is um, after the tops. Notice, notice that for me, the tops uh, there are cases where you have to use them to pull tension together, but you don't want to do that. Um, the tops, for me, are a way to evert that epidermis, so the, uh, the wounds are touching each other. So, um, so anyway, so this is before the tops, this is after the tops. 
I expect this wound to disappear. And uh, when you do closures, that's what you want. That's what you want to aim for. Okay. So the pearls that I've talked about today, please respect not all basal cells, but remember, don't get complacent when you're treating all these basal cells, and then you run into one that may be difficult or may cause this patient a big problem down the line. Just be wary of those situations that I showed. Use caution with immunosuppressed patients with squamous cell carcinoma. Watch them very carefully. Um, consider doing more aggressive treatment for them. Um, use proper biopsy technique for melanoma. Um, if you decide you have to do shave excisions, please go deeply. Um, consider postoperative antibiotics for uh, excisions or procedures below the leg. Um, use the peak epinephrine effect um, 15 minutes or so if, um, if you feel like that's going to help you. Uh, remember the purse string suture. Um, please try to make your patients as comfortable as possible. They'll like you and they'll come back. Um, and, and remember, beautiful scars for skin repairs. The most I always tell my patients, my first concern is getting you the best possible cure rate, but I take great pride in my cosmetic results too. We dermatologists, um, uh, the surgical part of dermatology has advanced so much in the last 15, 20 years. I really do think there are areas in um, cutaneous surgery that we do better than anybody else, and we should all take pride in, in doing nice work for people. Thank you.